Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are recent efforts by the federal government and the state of Connecticut to help consumers understand health care prices by mandating hospitals and insurers disclose the rates charged for services. What are the benefits and the drawbacks? Coming up where we live, we hear from the Connecticut Hospital Association and the State Office of Health Strategy. Now, this conversation comes on the heels of Connecticut lawmakers passing a bill proposed by Governor Lamont this session that limits how much providers and insurers can increase health care prices. Have you ever received a surprising hospital bill? Would you know how to compare prices at local hospitals before undergoing a medical procedure? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. First, Connecticut collected data from 30 local hospitals and reported that the price of a procedure varies wide, wildly from one facility to the next, depending on insurance. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Mary Catherine Wildeman, data reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. Mary Catherine, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Now, for some of our listeners who may not have read your story, I just wanted to uh, quote here uh, one example of a C-section procedure in your story. Uh, You wrote that if a woman with an Anthem health insurance plan gives birth by C-section at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport, her insurer would pay the hospital $10,988. But if she instead chose Bridgeport Hospital just three miles away, the rate her insurance company has agreed to pay for the same procedure would be less than half that amount. And at Day Kimball Healthcare in Putnam, United Healthcare has agreed to pay a little more than $5,000 for a C section. And if a patient considered other hospitals, they would find some United Healthcare plan rates are less than 1000 for a C section. Now, we should also note patients pay a portion of the negotiated amount depending on their insurance plan. So tell us why you dug into this data and was it difficult to get your hands on it? Um, Yes, it was difficult at first. I sort of undertook this over the course of several months, kind of over time, collecting this information. Hospitals post it um, on their own websites typically. And I think um, hospitals have done, and frankly, I believe, a better job over time of sharing this information. So it was first required in January of 2021. And um, by the time I published the story in April, uh, every hospital had shared at least some information, which is really exciting. But yes, it was, it was a challenge definitely to bring it all together. And I would think it would be difficult to uh, read the data and understand depending on how the hospitals are reporting and all these other variables, Mary Catherine. Yes, um, there's a lot of very specific sort of hospital billing terminology that I had to wade through, talk to some experts who've been working with this data, 
it to try to get a handle on it. Um, but yes, that was a bit of a learning curve and a process as well. Mm-hmm. Another example from your reporting, again, depending on if a patient had an HMO or a PPO plan with Aetna, the price for one hour of critical care at Manchester Memorial Hosp- Hospital was between $800 to about $3,800. Now, when you spoke to insurers like Aetna about these different payments negotiated with these hospitals for the same procedure, what was their response? I'm not sure I got a lot of clarity in general about why prices should vary so much. Um, In general, I think insurers and hospitals each have their own tools, basically, for patients to estimate their own prices. And I think that the industry in general, and I know we'll hear from some others later on in the show, uh, feel that the most useful tools are ones that take into account patients' exact sort of medical plan details, right? Um, So I think communicating about why these prices vary so much is hard and actually finding solutions to that issue is also really challenging. Mm -hmm. Also with us on Zoom is Vicki Veltri, Executive Director of the Office of Health Strategy with the state of Connecticut. Vicki, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you, Lucy, for having me here. So when I quoted the different prices for a C-section just a few miles away uh, and also depending on the plan, that might be really surprising for some listeners to hear. Uh, You were quoted in Mary Catherine's story, uh, quote, you said, this could be a sign of a market problem in which higher prices are being extracted from insurers than should be extracted. So can you elaborate? Yeah, that was one example I gave for uh, price variation. There could be many uh, examples for price variation. One could be Um, negotiating power. If systems are negotiating as a whole, they may be able to have more leverage in their contracting uh, with carriers. But there are other reasons for variations, including patient, what we call patient mix, meaning the health of the patients in the region. It could be the uh, markets are different. So one market's more costly than another for for staff, that is, and, and supplies that the hospital needs. Um, and there are, and there there are these things called wage classification areas. So that means you know in a market area where there's more expensive supplies and things going into your hospital's supply chain, your care may cost more. And the other one of the other factors that comes into play is plan design and the network. Whether there's a broad network, a narrow network, so it's a very very complicated mix of factors that go into the pricing. Mm. And it's not obvious to consumers, and I don't think ever will be. Mm. And so Mary Catherine mentioned this uh, this federal transparency law that went into effect in, in 2021, uh, and so now hospitals have to report this data. But coming up in the summer, I believe insurers are now going to have to disclose rates. And so what do you think of this, this progress, and what will be some of the immediate uh, uh, consequences that we'll see, Vicki? Well, I think it's always progress to have transparency. I think healthcare is a very complicated area and transparency is behind in healthcare. It's not like buying, as I tell people all the time, a refrigerator or a car where you can compare prices easily. Um, so I always think transparency is is a good thing to lead us to further action to try to work together to contain Uh, the underlying cost of care and bring down the rate of spending growth that we're seeing that consumers experience on a day-to-day basis and not just consumers, employers. So I think the immediate, um, the immediate fallout or or what you will see from these kinds of transactions is 
people starting to, I think, wonder about the cost of their care and how they can look at the cost of care. I think we are very behind on making information available to people to make choice. I will caution, however, that I do think consumers, it's very hard for consumers to shop for healthcare. So how information is presented is going to be critical for the future. Right. Um, so that's that's a difficult challenge that's on the horizon for us. Now you mentioned employers. So when we think about one of the immediate uh, um, results from all these disclosures happening, could we see employers directing their employees to to make certain healthcare choices or use certain facilities because the costs can be uh, greatly reduced? Yes. Short answer on that one is yes. They're <laughs> doing it across the country. Mm-hmm. If you're large enough, you can make. Uh, deals if you have a critical mass of a number of employees and you're what we call self-funded, meaning you're acting as your own insurer, you can make deals with certain hospitals, certain hospital systems, certain providers who you think are less expensive, but also provide high quality. So we're seeing that across the United States. The state employee plan is doing that as well for the state, uh, the the 200,000 or so people that are covered by the state plan. And that's because we see costs rising and we need to ensure that we're delivering good quality health care, but at a price that we can afford. Mary Catherine, uh, you're still with us. Uh, when we think about the out-of-pocket cost that a, a patient um, will get the bill uh, in the mail, when we think about the negotiated price, uh, can you talk a little bit about, again, how that price is negotiated, again, between hospitals and insurers, but what shows up on the patient's bill is n- is not necessarily uh, what their out-of-pocket cost could be. Can you explain that? Yes, this is a tricky one. <laughs> and um, there, there may be some different explanations that even do a better job, but here's what is most useful in my view. Uh, if the price, the, if the negotiated price is below your deductible you could, and you haven't met your deductible, you could hypothetically pay that full amount, right? So it is it is the discount off of essentially what it's costing the hospital to, to provide that service. Um, that's what the negotiated charges, but if your plan has different benefits, it could, you know, it's going to kick in and cover a large part or even all of that price. So it's really confusing and it remains sort of confounding for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and to Vicki's point, I think, yeah, it's, it's extremely tough for patients to shop for these kinds of, services themselves, I think, and she she would agree, I think that um, it's still important to kind of put that information out there and give people the right and access to the information, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we're getting a, a tweet from a listener, Kathy, uh, who writes, you know, why should the burden be put on individual patients to price shop? And why aren't we looking at the systems and who actually has power here? And so uh, I'll start with you, Vicki, when we think again about this federal transparency bill that went into effect to uh, mandate that hospitals disclose uh, the the prices, and now insurers will also have to do that. I mean, are we getting are we getting there in terms of you know putting more emphasis on the systems in place that are they're making this pretty complicated? Yes, I think uh, not fast enough for a lot of us. I think, but we are getting there. In fact, that's one of the reasons the governor uh, proposed the benchmarking bill, in which we'll we'll see a lot more sunlight on the rate of spending across our entire health system, not just hospitals. Um, And it's important to say that it isn't just hospital costs that are um, contributing to people's healthcare costs. But we we need to shine the light on on this because I think over time, patients uh, need to understand what's driving their insurance costs. 
So when you when you pay every month for your premium and your deductible and your co-pays or your co-insurance, that's a reflection of the cost going into your health care. So without shining a light on it, you know, you may continue to to look at this saying, why am I paying so much for care? I don't get it. Why, why is all the burden on me? Um, and that's a fair question until we put the data out there and we take a shot at doing something about what we're seeing with these underlying costs. I think we have to. We have no choice. We're seeing rates of growth of spending for people and out-of-pocket costs that are uh, just so substantial that people can't afford to even go for their health care, which creates a bigger problem. So you don't go for your health care, then you may end up with worse condition and go to the highest cost care. So I feel for patients because I don't think we've made it easy and we, we need to explain what goes into those costs so they can understand um, how to tackle this issue, not just themselves, but systemically in partnership, I think, with the state and others. We're hearing Vicki Veltri here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Office of Health Strategy for the state of Connecticut, as we talk about uh, health care costs. Uh, uh, I know in Mary Catherine's reporting, uh, she listed, um, you know, it's shown that Connecticut is sixth in health care spending per person. And so, Vicki, when we look at, um, you know, what you're seeing in terms of utilization rates versus how uh, thing, costs are rising, can you give us some more examples? Sure. So I think we're seeing different patterns now. So, and I'm sure Paul will talk about this too. Uh, care is shifting to outpatient settings quite rapidly. We've seen a reduction of utilization of inpatient care, meaning the ho- direct hospital care going into surgery, let's say into a hospital. Much of that care has moved out into outpatient settings. Um, that's a good thing, generally speaking, because outpatient settings tend to be less expensive. There's also some uh, literature about quality being better in some outpatient settings. But that said, uh, we need to look at systems as a whole and make sure what we're not doing is creating uh, a situation where patients don't have choice and where there's not a lot of competition. And I think one of our concerns is maintaining competition in the healthcare marketplace to ensure we can keep prices down for people. It's not as easy as people think it is, but I think we have to pay a lot more attention to that part of the um, equation. Uh, Mary Catherine Wildeman is still with us, data reporter for Hearst, Connecticut. Uh, Vicki mentioned quality. When we look at the variation in prices across local hospitals, is there any evidence that uh, depending on the price that's charged that uh, a patient might be getting better quality? What do we know? Oh, I certainly haven't seen any uh, research or data to support that. It's, and it's one thing that can be really hard, I think, to establish because um, quality data is not as transparent or op- it's not out, as out in the open as it needs to be either, right? So it's very hard for patients, researchers, employers, anyone to really establish whether the price they're paying is actually worth it in terms of value and the quality of the care that they're getting. And that's a big issue as well. Vicki, your office has the all-payer claims database, so that's the bills that people receive, but it's not public. Uh, What are you working on in terms of creating a more central, searchable database of hospital prices for those with private plans? So that's that's a really good question. Yes, the all-payer claims database has millions and millions of claims in it, and it it does include what people are paying for care and what they may be responsible for for their cost sharing. So it's okay. We are in the process right now of standing up a new, uh, I, I will say a portal 
or a public way for consumers and employers to explore uh, what prices are across the state, um, including variations. I think it will take us a while to build in the quality piece, but I, I do think it's important to not separate quality from price all the time. And I, I think it's very true that high price things aren't necessarily high quality and the reverse is true as well. So while we will be developing this portal for people to shop, there are also other sources of information that do reflect quality, um, like LeapFrog and some other sources out there that people can use to compare quality. Even the federal government has some of that information, but it's not easy. And I will just say consumers tend to shop by reputation, by friendships, by their doctors. Um, so we have to be able to get to a time where people can see this information publicly, make objective comparisons, and then basically go ask questions. Ask questions of your own doctor, ask questions of your insurance company. That's really the goal here. When do you expect this portal to be up and running? And when we think about how patients uh, can also uh, be involved, are you getting any input in you know, how to make this database navigable and easy to understand? Yeah, so the answer to the last question is is easier. Mm -hmm. We are assembling a couple of focus groups. I think both a consumer focus group and an employer focus group, because I think those are probably the two audiences that we really need to key in on. Um, I think our timeline is a couple of months. I hope my team doesn't get angry with me for saying that, but we do need to get that information up and out there for people. <laughs> That's good. Good to hear. Uh, will this database be modeled after any states um, in terms of you know getting that patient input and, and making it uh, easy to search? Yeah. So there's there's several states out there that do have um, some tools. Maine, um, you know, Fair Health is a tool. There's a couple of other states. We are looking at those as well. Um, so. We have, I believe, talked to a few states, but we definitely want to have the input of people here in Connecticut and what's most useful to them. Um, as you may know, every state is sort of, every state is a little bit different in how uh, they're constructed in terms of the carriers that participate in health plans, the number of hospital systems, et cetera. So we do want to make it a Connecticut solution that works for people. Again, that's Vicki Veltri, Executive Director of the Office of Health Strategy with the State of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Again, we're talking about a recent story by Hearst, Connecticut, that explores hospital care costs and what they charge for medical procedures can be, quote, wildly different depending on the facility and a patient's insurance plan. Mary Catherine Wildeman reported that story for Hearst. She's also with us. Now, we're going to take a quick break, and afterwards, we're going to hear from Paul Kidwell, who's with the Connecticut Hospital Association. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're exploring the high costs of health care and the impact of a federal transparency law on hospitals and soon insurers who must disclose the prices they charge for medical procedures. Now, there's a wide variation on rates negotiated between insurers and hospitals, and the reasons behind those rates are complicated. But will disclosure laws alone help normalize prices? What's needed beyond transparency? Again, with us is Mary Catherine Wildeman, data reporter at Hearst, Connecticut, and Vicki Veltri, executive director of the Office of Health Strategy with the state of Connecticut. I wanted to take a quick call. Noelle's calling in from Bridgeport. Noelle, what did you want to share? I just am struck by the elephant in the living room, which is the for-profit aspect of what I have come to call health scare. Um, I am... I have had the experience of being in an emergency situation several times where the opportunity to do research on which hospital I should go to or should I go by ambulance or drive my family member myself because I haven't met my deductible. The um, the for-profit aspect is the thing that is the most outrageous to me in, in this country. When I need a drink of water, I don't necessarily do research on which tap is going to be the safest one to drink from. Um, it's a right, healthcare, and it's outrageous to me the expense of it. Thank you, Noelle, for that point. Uh, Vicki Veltri, did you want to respond to Noelle's comment? Um, I, I sympathize with people. I think, again, healthcare is not, very few things in healthcare are shoppable. Certainly, emergency situations are not shoppable. So, Consumers are put in this awkward position in healthcare that you're not put in in other markets. Uh, we're we're in the middle, right? Consumers are in the middle. We're not negotiating the rates. Um, you know, the rates are negotiated between the systems and the insurers. So we're we don't really have the bargaining power to make choice and affect those decisions, which is why it's incumbent upon employers who do pay a lot for healthcare. The, the vast majority of healthcare, besides the federal government, and states where there is leverage from federal government to step in and do something to protect patients, because patients just don't have those rights and can't can't really force the dynamic themselves. Uh, for another perspective, with us on Zoom is Paul Kidwell, who's senior vice president for policy at the Connecticut Hospital Association. Paul, welcome to our show. Uh, thanks, Lucy, for having me. So we spent some time uh, hearing about Mary Catherine Wildeman's reporting for Hearst when we see these wide variations in prices at hospitals. Can you respond to that reporting? You know, why why are there such wide variations? Sure, and I think Mary Catherine and Vicky actually did a, a nice job sort of explaining some of the variables that go into negotiating rates with uh, health insurance companies. And as Mary Catherine noted, one of those is uh, whether an insurance product is a narrow network or a wide network. 
um, what the labor costs are in a in a certain area, what the um, there may be volume discounts associated with the contract. So as I think both have noted, it's a complicated uh, negotiation between insur insurers. And so that is uh, some of the reason why uh, th those uh, negotiated rates do vary. Mm. Uh, you mentioned it's complicated, but does it need to be complicated uh, when we think about, again, what the federal government's trying to do with the disclosure law that passed in 2021? Mm -hmm. Insurers are now going to have to disclose rates. Uh, I was we were looking at a Brookings report uh, from 2020 uh, that the findings are, you know, this type of price variation does not exist in a well-functioning competitive market. If the market's functioning well, consumers will avoid a business that charges much higher prices than its competitors. But Brookings found many healthcare markets violate this expectation nationally. For example, estimates from the Healthcare Cost Institute show that the price for a blood test ranges from $22 to $37 in Baltimore, Maryland, but in El Paso, Texas, the same range is $144 to $952. And so, Paul, how do you respond as you know as a group that lobbies for local hospitals in our state? Sure. So, uh, you know, as Mary Catherine noted, one of the things that we think is really important is to provide uh, patients with the tools so that they can better understand what um, they may be asked uh, to pay for certain services. And so um, if you look at the 27 acute care hospitals in the state, um, many if not all of them have price estimator tools that you can use um, with your own insurance plan information to go in and uh, take a uh, look at what you, know, you, you maybe um, uh, have to pay for, for the service um, you know, and part of this, though, is is insurance design. And so um, having a relationship with the insurer to understand what your cost might be, where you are with your deductible is is also important. Mary Catherine, you're still with us. Could you respond to Paul's point about these um, cost calculators on hospital websites? You know, while it sounds like a tool that might be useful for some, can it also be complicated when we think about how there's billing codes and you're a data reporter. Did you have any difficulty in trying to glean this information <laughs> from hospitals? Um, well, I think, first of all, when, when I, I've been a healthcare reporter for several years and when I hear from people and patients who say, you know, how do I find out what this is going to cost me? I usually point them toward their insurance plan specifically and say, you know, go use that cost estimator tool. It is useful in a lot of situations or can be depending on, you know, which company you're with. But I think that um, on the other hand, there's also value in bringing this data to the fore as we discussed earlier on the show. And yeah, it's, it's super complicated. Um, I think, I mean, I honestly think that um, hospitals and insurance plans want patients to have this information because I think it helps people to know what they're going to be responsible for. Um, so from a business perspective, that's always a good thing. But yeah, I think that um, it, it's a confounding situation and there's even different sort of lexicons for different um, kinds of billing codes, which the average person is never going to, you know, um, take the time. It would rarely take the time to learn how to deal with. So. You know, earlier, I don't know if it was this year, all the months blend together, but we did a show on Wyndham Hospital shutting down its maternity ward because of low number of births there. Uh, in your reporting, Mary Catherine, you show that an Anthem managed care plan paid the highest rate for a C-section in Connecticut there, about $17,000. Hartford HealthCare operates Wyndham Hospital. What did you hear from them? 
Yeah, to be transparent, I'd reached out to them ahead of the story and um, they, they didn't say much about that variation in price. And then um, I guess after, actually just a couple of days ago, they reached out to let me know that they felt the, that they don't basically use that code to, to, um, to bill for C-sections. So that's an issue I'm kind of working through with them. But I think that, yes, the, the reporting showed that um, the prices were higher at Wyndham Hospital Um and it, I've read some research that supports that lower volumes can actually lead to higher prices in some cases, because basically the cost of providing that service is, is higher. Um, but that's kind of a risk. I think that's interesting because it's a result that um, patients wouldn't necessarily expect. And it's not something obviously that they have control over, particularly if you live in a more remote area. So I think it's a really interesting topic. Paul Kidwell, did you want to respond uh, to what uh, Mary Catherine just raised? No, I think that's, that's right. As um, in negotiating the rates, certainly hospitals are looking at the service mix that they're providing at the hospital and the um, costs associated with providing those services and negotiating uh, accordingly. I want to take some calls. You can join us, 888-720-9677. Dolores and Cromwell. Dolores, you're on the show. Uh, yes, good morning. Um, yes, I've observed that Hartford Healthcare Systems is very aggressively buying all the hospitals around the state and, um, and the physician groups around the state. And that, that's eliminating competition and uh, um, I think diminishing the possibility of good, excellent health care. So what is being done or can be done about that? Mm. Thank you, Dolores. Paul Kidwell, did you want to respond? How does that impact uh, the prices that are charged when you have large hospital systems uh, and not a lot of competition? Uh, Sure. So uh, certainly um, uh, there are some efficiencies that um, come with uh, some of the systems in our state where they're able to provide certain services um, uh, it, 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 via you know their their large system capacity, I will say um, re- related to uh, physician group practices, and Vicky may want to uh, jump in here. There is um, work in the state to understand what are some of the reasons why physician groups um, are looking to uh, hospitals to sort of join hospital systems. Part of that is just the cost of running a physician practice today with uh, medical malpractice insurance the cost of IT systems, um, the cost of labor, those things are uh, in some instances pricing out um, some of those physician practices. But certainly in Connecticut, we have a process by which any um, hospital that wants to acquire another has to go through in Vicki's office actually, um, and they'll do their due diligence related to, to, to those transactions. Mm-hmm. Vicki Veltri. So I will just uh, chime in to say with respect to um, physician acquisitions, we are really looking at that. that that's been a hot topic um, at the legislature and among a lot of us looking at what ver- what we call vertical acquisitions is, meaning um, hospitals buying physician groups, how that's affecting the price of health care and choice in the healthcare market. In fact, we were charged with putting together some recommendations for the legislature for January 23 about this issue. So there is a work group um, that's made up of various stakeholders to address that. Um, I, I will say with respect to healthcare and your point earlier, Lucy, I, I don't see it as a market like other markets. And I think that's 
somewhat of a fallacy when people try to compare the healthcare market to, again, buying refrigerators or purchasing health uh, cars. It doesn't function that way because the consumer doesn't have the power. The consumer really doesn't have bargaining power. Um, so it isn't as much of a competitive market as it needs to be. And it's our job to make sure it is as competitive as it needs to be. So I take the, the point that was raised very seriously. And I think we do have to look at what's happening in the market and how that directly affects pricing patterns and people's access to healthcare. Sarah's calling in from New Haven. Sarah, you're on the show. Hi. Um, actually, my, my comment and question just related a little bit to what was just said. Um, I, I feel really strongly that while you can put a value on so many things, how do you really shop around and really consider the cost of a procedure when it's a life or death situation for yourself or your family? And, um, you know, I say this as someone who has had life-saving surgery as a child. And so, um, you know, I just, I don't know how the consumer can ever have enough power in this situation. And I'd love to hear more about that. Mm. Thank you, Sarah, for that point. Uh, uh, Paul Kidwell, I'd like to hear from you uh, with the Connecticut Hospital Association. Sure. So one of the, um, <clears throat> certainly uh, agree with Sarah, there are certain s- scenarios in which um, there is is a life or death emergency. You're coming to the emergency department and there's actually federal law um, recently um, implemented um, and we had the state law in Connecticut prior that says if you uh, come into a Connecticut emergency department, um, you know, and, and it turns out that that the emergency department's not in your insurance network, you're going to just pay what you would have otherwise paid if you'd walked into it in network hospital. So there are protections for individuals. But I think part of this, and Vicki alluded to it, I think earlier, is the relationship with that an individual has with their physician and the guidance that, that or other provider that the guidance they're providing um, uh, to, to, to describe where, you know, service, service should be provided, whether it's in an inpatient or an outpatient setting, as Vicki noted, um, all of that goes into a decision about uh, where to seek service. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. You're hearing Paul Kidwell, Senior Vice President for Policy at the Connecticut Hospital Association. Also here with us, Vicki Valtry, Executive Director of Office of Health Strategy with the State of Connecticut, and Mary Catherine Wildeman, data reporter for Hearst. Uh, Patricia tweeted, when I was told by Connecticut Hospital that we owed them money, what a nightmare to challenge that, even though I had receipts because of how opaque their billing is. Transparency has to begin with user-friendly billing. Mary Catherine, uh, how do you respond to that listener tweet? I think that's a great point, and I love the perspective. I think um, another thing that I often tell people who I talk to who are, you know, used healthcare and have been affected by a high price um, is basically to pick up the phone and and call and see if you can negotiate it down. It's not something that's always easy, but... Um, there's a really high rate of errors in medical billing as well. Um, so that's something that patients should probably keep in mind to this um, tweeter's point. <laughs> um, and yeah, but it, but it, again, it just remains confounding and, and really difficult for patients to navigate. Mm. Uh, earlier, Vicki Valtry mentioned uh, this bill that just passed the Connecticut General Assembly proposed by Governor Lamont to cap rising health care costs. Uh, Paul, what is uh, the hospital association's take on this bill? Thanks for asking, and I appreciate Vicki uh, bringing it up. So we've been actually working um, since January of 2020 um, uh, with the governor's office and with uh, the Office of Health Strategy on implementation of the cost growth benchmark. 
We think it's uh, important that we, hospitals and hospital systems, the insurers, pharmaceutical companies, device manufacturers, consumers, um, community members come together um, to look at the information that we have available about spending and try to lower that, um, uh, lower the trajectory of, of spending. So we're excited uh, that the state legislature uh, took action to codify it and we're looking forward to continuing to work with the state uh, on its implementation. Vicki, did you want to talk more about that, that bill? We just uh, referenced it briefly earlier. Yeah, thank you very much, Lucy, for that. And thanks, Paul, for the comment. We have been working with um, the hospitals, the carriers, everybody in the healthcare space. I think there's a fair acknowledgement among everybody that healthcare spending is a real challenge for consumers on a daily basis, but also, again, employers. I go back to the, the need for employers to be able to offer benefits that their employees can afford and and for employers to be able to locate in the state of Connecticut and stay here. So continuing uh, high growth of spending is a real challenge here. So we are just uh, just began data collection for um, a couple of years. We put out a couple reports about healthcare spending for a four-year period between 2015 and 2019 by different kinds of categories of service. And we put together a steering committee made up of um, the CEOs of our large systems, the health carriers, some consumers, um, and employers to try to strategize now. Now that we're putting this data out here, how are we going to work together? We all need to own this problem, and we now need to take these data, plumb it deeply, and come up with policies and strategies to tackle these costs. It's going to be difficult because people have different views about where things are coming from, but we've got to be open about this problem and we really have got to address it. So we're just kind of in the beginning of getting the data out there and we'll start to be putting policy levers or, or ideas out to the legislature or administrative ideas or tackle certain kinds of healthcare conditions and see what we can do that way collaboratively across the healthcare space but we're really excited about it. We're very happy about it. We're only one of four states in the United States who actually has this codified. And uh, we're very happy to have the support of the governor and uh, the Peterson Millbank program, I might say, who's provided us a lot of support along the way. So stay tuned. We're at the beginning, but we think this is a great strategy to get start getting healthcare spending under control. Mm. Uh, Paul Kidwell, uh, when we think about you know capping costs, uh, rising healthcare costs, could there be any unintended consequences? Could you see hospitals cutting more expensive services as a result? Yeah, certainly. I think um, there are likely um, a number of unintended consequences to uh, setting prices. I think that um, what we're working on with the state is uh, sort of a different uh, model, which is let's really understand what the data is and think about um, where are uh, places that we can focus our energy to start to reduce the spending trajectory. So Vicki noted earlier, uh, moving uh, certain care into an outpatient setting where that care can be less expensive, right? Same day surgeries, that can be done on the same day and the individual can go home and rehabilitate at home. I think really important is starting to really think about how do we help people manage their chronic conditions and think about the health of a community um, so that we can avoid some of those hospitalizations or emergency department visits that 
um, you know, otherwise won't be, be necessary. Those are the types of conversations we want to have uh, with the state, with insurers and employers and community members uh, that we think will be valuable in, in slowing that spending growth. Thank you, Paul. Mary Catherine, uh, we, we did this show based on your great reporting. You know, what's next? <laughs> oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, I want to do some reporting on charity care, I think, and, and um, how people can access the uh, free or reduced price care people can get. I think that's an accessible point. Um, and a lot of hospitals do offer a lot of charity care. Um, and furthermore, I think we'll just look to this July release of more information from insurance companies and see what that shows. I think it's going to be a really interesting effort, and I'm looking forward to it. That's Mary Catherine Wildeman, data reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Also with us, Paul Kidwell with the Connecticut Hospital Association. We thank you for your time. And Vicki Veltri, Executive Director of the Office of Health Strategy with the state of Connecticut. We'll be looking forward to that database. Thanks, Vicki. Thank you so much, Lucy. This is where we live. Coming up, we're going to hear from the CEO of Breeze Health. That's affiliated with Connecticut-based Goodroot, Inc. Breeze helps qualifying customers reduce their hospital bills through financial assistance programs. We find out more after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been hearing how transparency laws will help patients and employers understand the health care costs and prices negotiated between insurers and hospitals. There are also organizations that are working to help patients who might be receiving or could receive a high hospital bill. Joining us now on Zoom, Nick McLaughlin, founder and CEO of Breeze Health. Nick, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be on with you, Lucy. So your organization, again, helps patients reduce their hospital bill. That's good news. How do you do it? Yeah, certainly. So uh, we actually partner with hospitals to help them more effectively connect their lower income patients to the hospital's financial assistance or charity care programs. Um, A big chunk of that reduces the cost of care for uh, the patients that need it the most and um, also looking to reduce the administrative burden of these programs on hospitals as well. And so when we think about uh, the bill a, a patient may receive, are they seeking you out or this is something on the front end that a hospital um, identifies a person that needs assistance and that's where uh, you're helping them as well? Can you explain the process a little? Yeah. So at this point, most hospitals have an opt-in system for um, applying for financial assistance. So if a patient is experiencing some financial hardship with their uh, hospital or health system bills, um, they can pull up the hospital's financial assistance policy. Um, they've got a plain language summary on the hospital's website as well. Um, what we really encourage patients to do is to uh, essentially Google the name of their hospital and then financial assistance program. And that will likely get you to the right place. Uh, uh, A lot of that information can be a bit challenging for patients to understand 
and navigate. And that's really where we come in in partnering with hospitals to make their uh, financial assistance programs more patient friendly and accessible. Mm. We've heard from listeners this hour who've called in, who've tweeted that, you know, are frustrated that the onus is always on the patient to find a way to have to opt in. And so when we think about if there was a different way that they'd be finding out about this type of program, more people that could be eligible more than you think. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the the way uh, hospital billing currently works, there's a significant percentage of patients that are uh, financial assistance eligible under the hospital's policy uh, that wind up going to collections instead of accessing uh, the financial assistance program and the um, the bill relief and financial burden reduction that those programs offer. And so it's really important, um, one, to increase awareness that these financial assistance programs are available to patients, um, but also a huge part of our mission is uh, reducing the hurdles and the barriers to uh, accessing those programs because uh, we want it to be as uh, as patient-friendly and easy to access and navigate as possible. And, and honestly, that's a win for uh, the hospitals as well. It, it really isn't a bonus to them to send bills to patients that can't afford to pay. Right. And when we think about some of the hospital systems that uh, Breeze works with, uh, whether they're out of state or in Connecticut, you know, are you seeing a shift at all? Yeah, we really are. Uh, it's it's exciting to speak with the hospitals that we're working with because they're they're reporting that uh, they're sensing a significant increase in awareness around their financial assistance program um, by making their uh, by making a super patient friendly, easy to use uh, eligibility checker where patients can just anonymously bump their information up against the hospital's financial assistance eligibility criteria online and then completing their application online as well. Unfortunately, at most hospitals right now, um, those those processes are uh, paper based and there's lots of delays in requesting an application form to be mailed and um, some can be downloaded, but uh, there's just some serious opportunities for optimizing the whole uh, the whole process for connecting eligible patients to financial assistance. And, and honestly, it's something um, that the, the White House brought up in their uh, medical debt uh, uh, release just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago about how hospitals, they're encouraging hospitals to make uh, it easier for eligible patients to uh, receive financial assistance that they qualify for. I understand that you've got a personal story. When you think about the work that your organization is doing, you've helped family members reduce their hospital bill. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, what's what? Uh, the first person I ever helped apply for financial assistance uh, was my uh, wife's 86-year-old grandfather. And uh, he and grandma were on uh, Medicare and had a, a deductible of $750 after a hospital stay of his. And as, a, as an older couple on a fixed income, it was really just he and grandma and their social security checks. I, I said, well, grandpa, have you ever thought about applying for financial assistance at your health system? And he looked at me and said, what's that? He'd never heard of financial assistance, even though this hospital was fully in compliance with uh, the laws around publicizing their financial assistance policy, uh, they still, those efforts often fall short. And so uh, we pulled up his policy, um, uh, walked through, I was able to locate the eligibility criteria and the application form, and and I held his hand through that process. But uh, 
uh, there was a there was a positive outcome on the end. Uh, what what people don't think about is is there's a significant chunk of patients with insurance that qualify for these financial assistance programs as well. Well, that's good to know. And when we think about how Breeze is navigating the complexity of hospital billing with patients, there's room for the private sector maybe to also help patients navigate hospital pricing. What we talked about earlier, Nick. Um, so I'm I'm not super sure about mm. the uh, pricing aspect, like our like our uh, panelists were speaking earlier. It's a really complicated uh, situation and system. Um, but a, a big chunk of our piece is really just uh, a private sector approach to helping empower the financial assistance programs that hospitals already have in place. Um, they just need some extra energy and some creative approach to making them more effective. Um, so hospitals can. Uh, stop sending charity eligible patients to collections and instead um, get them the financial relief from their medical bills so they can feel comfortable um, seeking the care that they need when they need it. Because it's really those uh, lower and middle income folks that have the biggest uh, biggest challenges affording care, especially when we're talking about um, $5,000 deductibles and things like that. That's Nick McLaughlin, founder and CEO of Breeze Health. Thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, microbeads were banned in the U.S. in 2015, but tiny bits of plastic known as microplastics and another man-made chemical called PFAS have been found in our environment and in our bodies. Tomorrow, we hear about efforts to track these contaminants in Connecticut, and we want to hear from you. We hope you join us.